welcome back, everybody, to Brubble, a podcast gathering young voices and perspectives from in and around the Brussels bubble. And, as always, I'm your host, Simon. Today, we're on the eve of a pretty interesting political milestone, the U.S. midterm election for 2022. Well, this is always an event that moves and shakes the political direction in America, this year seems especially pressing with issues like inflation, Roe v. Wade, increasing political tensions, all occupying prominent positions. So, what should we be watching for? What can we be expect on Tuesday? And, perhaps most importantly from my Brussels-based geographical position, what implications could this have on the EU and the transatlantic relationship? And so, to join me in taking a peek under the hood of this midterm election is Paul. Paul, how excited are you for this election? Or is excited the wrong word? On a scale from 1 to 10? Um, last time I took a week off just to deal with the election itself. Because either Biden won and I would have to do a lot of media, or Trump won and I wouldn't have to t- want to talk to people for about a week. Turned out the election actually took True. a week at that time. So that was a total, you know. Yeah. Um, so uh, mounting dread is how I would describe it. There we go. That That's a good phrase. And I mean, speaking of mounting dread, Paul, do you want to introduce yourself to the audience, tell the people who you are, why you're, you know, an esteemed voice to hear on this topic? Esteemed. Uh, um, yeah, sure. So my name is Paul Verhagen. I am a subject matter expert at the HCSS. It's a think tank in The Hague. And I mostly focus on the US-China tech relationships, so the tech war at this point. Uh, but I have a bit of a weird background. So I have a very hard science background in theoretical physics, and I'm currently doing a second master's in mathematical artificial intelligence. And I uh, am an American citizen. I wrote a book on U.S. Mm. politics, and I am... Someone in the Netherlands described me as the Dutch Nate Silver. I think that might be too much credit, but I know all the polls and all this sort of stuff uh, inside, out, and sideways. So um, that's why I'm on. It's an interesting perspective, and I mean, the Nate Silver comment, you said it, I uh-huh. didn't, but I can, you know, mirror Many people have there, called I mean, me, uh, yes. some have said. <laughs> some of them being yourself, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> not going to get into that. <laughs> but yeah, actually, you and I, we have a similar background in the sense we're both transatlantic in our upbringing. I am somewhat Canadian and somewhat Dutch, and you are distinctly American as well as distinctly yes. Dutch. Uh, and we both worked at the HCSS, yeah. so, you know, paths collide again. And I'm a bit Chinese as well, yeah. so uh, I'm actually ethnically Chinese, Dutch, and I have a Dutch and American passport, so I'm either triple biased, triple spy, or I'm ostensibly neutral. Um, you mm, pick. Definitely. And w- and we'll see how this plays out during the podcast, where we're, we're going to dissect this little election of ours. And I guess coming on to this, I kind of want to ask, I mean, you touched a bit on part your relationship with America, but I assume as an American citizen, you're voting in this election. Are you looking forward to that? Um, well, no, because so I can vote in California. And one thing to remember for U.S. politics is that, uh, one, there is no modern democracy that makes it harder for people to actually participate in their democracy. It's just a very stupid thing that the United States does. And two, it doesn't matter so much who votes as to where they vote. So I used to be able to vote in California in one of the few districts that was actually competitive. Uh, and I got gerrymandered this year. So my vote, that was marginally useful because it could at least vote for the House. Like Senate and Governor is always Democratic anyway. Uh, went from a plus four red district to a plus 30 blue district. So it literally doesn't matter if I vote anymore. I still did, but it doesn't matter. So uh, excited? Not Mm. exactly. Yeah, it it is interesting how that kind of shapes, you know, political enthusiasm and what people are looking into. 
And I suppose if you want to see more of Paul's enthusiasm, you should follow him on Twitter. I'll drop the links below. Visit out his website, which has an excellent, con you know, concise version of what we're going to be talking about today here. But uh, I guess to, to, to go into this, I want to ask you first, describe to me in five words, if you can, what's the political situation like in America today? Uh, is this a family-friendly podcast? Because I th can think of a couple of non-PG-13 I mean, I'm I'm trying to use this question to you know to you know uh, judge out your bias. So so take this any way it's you want. It's a fucking dumpster fire. I mean, like it's mm. okay. So more academically phrased, the United States is at least as politically unstable and polarized as the eve of the Civil War. Um, this is really worrying. The rhetoric on both sides. Well, I mean, both sides. The rhetoric, especially from the far right, towards. Um, undemocratic norms is unprecedented. There are people saying that Kerry Lake, for instance, Arizona, that the United States is not a democracy, but a republic. And then their argument is kind of like, well, votes shouldn't matter, or at least votes shouldn't matter one-to-one. -one. So I, I do fall in line largely with the, what I would say is the mainstream consensus that democracy is under attack, um, that it is threatened, mm. And that uh, the United States is a very precarious position uh, and time. So this is very worrying. And how do you think the midterms will kind of shape this going forward? Because, I mean, sitting here in Europe, I, I'm kind of you know, precariously thinking, I don't think this will get better from my viewpoint. Did, are, are you sharing those similar fears as I do? Yeah. So th these midterms are interesting for a bunch of different reasons. Um, so first of all, I think don't lose sight of the bigger picture, which is that not only is democracy on the ballot in terms of candidates that are running for potentially election-denying offices, right? So we can touch in a little bit about Trump and this sort of stuff. But this election also determines whether election denial is a valid political strategy going forward. And I think it's fairly important to actually stress this because if you forget about all your normative problems about what is and is not accessible in political rhetoric... One of the reasons why, for instance, far-right parties use anti-immigrant rhetoric is because it's politically effective. If it turns out that election denial is a effective political strategy, this will continue going on. And this will get worse because people will actually maximize the strategy. They'll like sort of figure out how it works. And then we're on for an entirely different kind of political paradigm. If it turns out that this is just a bad strategy, that it doesn't work that well, I would expect to see a little bit of the election denial, democracy undermining type of rhetoric um, cooling down a little bit, but it does not look good. Yeah, definitely interesting. Keep eye on that because that's one of those trends which I think can really bubble across borders and really spill over to other countries. Because we've seen already, I think in Brazil, they, the Yara Bolsonaro, he tried to steal a lot of Trump's playbook and who knows how, how well it'll work out for him in, in the days to come. But yeah, yeah. We'll see how that this unfolds. is also worth stressing because a lot of people are kind of like, well, I, I'm not American, why, why should I care? Um, one, it's, a, mm -hmm. it's still the most powerful actor in the world by far, so it's relevant indirectly. But also, um, especially in Europe, uh, countries adopt their political culture from the United States. So in particular in the Netherlands, where I live, if something goes on to Fox News, you can be yeah. guaranteed that two or three weeks later it'll pop up in the right-wing fringes in the Dutch ecosystem. Um, so recently the far-right leaders started talking about lizard people, this sort of stuff. Um, so we really do take our cues from the United States. And in that sense, the United States is the leading democracy in the world, not because it's the best democracy, but because it sets an example for political discourse around democracies. And degrading that in the U.S. has knock-on effects everywhere else as well. 
And I suppose before we get too deep into the analysis, I kind of want to reel it in a step back and, and, and give a bit quick refresher to you know the, the people who might not know, mm-hmm. including myself, a bit what's at stake in this midterm and what's happening in this midterm. So as you, you hinted at, there's three different or four different positions up for election uh, come uh, the 8th. Do you want to kind of run over what's happening? Yeah. So uh, the midterms are held every four years. Um, and basically... Uh, in the midterms, the entire House of Representatives, which is 435 people, is up for re-election. Uh, this is Congress. And the a third of the Senate is up for re-election. So in this particular case, that's 35 senators. In addition to that, often gubernatorial races are up. And also the associated sort of uh, statewide offices like Secretary of State, etc. These are important because they govern how elections work. And then finally, there's things like ballot measures, which are pretty interesting. So uh, in the wake of Roe v. Wade being struck down, a lot of states are now having essentially referenda on whether or not you want to enshrine Roe v. Wade in your constitution. So these four levels, uh, the House, the Senate, statewide office, and referenda, or ballot measures, as they're often called, these are the four things that are being currently voted for. And these are important because they, in large part, determine whether or not the president, in this case, Joe Biden, can actually execute his strategy. And historically, this has always been a absolute dumpster fire for the ruling party. Um, midterms should not be close. So just to put it into perspective, uh, there have been only two midterms in US history where the ruling party did not lose seats during the first midterm. That was 1932 with FDR, and it was 2002 with um, George W. Bush. So this was just after 9-11. I think it's actually 1934 for FDR. And this was during the Great Recession. Your prior, your assumption should be um, you're going to get absolutely destroyed in the midterms. This happened to Trump. This happened to Obama. This almost always happens. And yet, we find ourselves in this interesting situation right now. Yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, I mean, the Nate Silver Netherlands that you are, I, I think myself also haven't keep, kept an eye a bit in the polls. What's the situation looking like right now then? Uh, so it's it's a bit of a mess and it's a bit of a confusing story. So as I said before, midterms shouldn't be close. Um, to put some perspective, yeah. I think in, I don't have the numbers in front of me right now, but in 2018, I think the Democrats took over like something like 60 seats in the House. Uh, so usually the opposition party sweeps into power. Right now it kind of looks like the the Republicans will win the House and the Senate is unclear, but it shouldn't be this close. Um, And it kind of depends. So let's say you um, fell into a coma in June of this year and you only woke up now, like a week before the election, Uh, there would be a remarkable level of continuity because back in June, the Republicans were up, they were winning, it looked like it was going to be a traditional midterms sweep for Team Red. And then over the summer, just a bunch of things happened that just totally messed everything up. So uh, we had Roe v. Wade uh, being struck down. We had the FBI raid on Mar-a-Lago. And we had a bunch of pretty significant policy advantages from uh, advances from the Democrats. And all of this kind of put Democrats into a much more favorable position. Uh, if you ask people, what do you care about? They would talk about abortion. They would talk about social issues like gun control. They would talk about uh, climate change. So these were all issues that were good for Democrats. Now, 
we're looking at a bit of a worsening picture for the Democrats because the economy is becoming more and more of an issue, and that tends to drive Republican voters. So it's kind of, if you asked me in June or in July, I would have said, well, it looks suspiciously good for the Democrats. Now it looks like a bit more of a conventional midterms, namely the opposition party will likely win. But it is, again, much, much, much closer than it should be. And we can talk in a little bit maybe about why that might be. Is this a closeness or widening of what we would have expected to happen in June versus now? Is that due to the Democrats slipping up somewhere? Or is that just due to, I don't know, outside tensions, Ukraine, COVID even still happening? So I think in large part, this is just political inertia kind of uh, setting in. So... Um, normally speaking, economic issues tend to be the sort of most voter driving issue when things are essentially neutral, right? Like it requires fairly large events to happen for things to have higher priority than economy. And I think there's this misconception that elections are about two competing answers to the same question. It's not. It's not about who has the better policy. Elections are about what is the question being asked in the first place. And right now, what we're seeing is that the question is shifting from what are your social rights, such as abortion, et cetera, to can I make it to the end of the month in terms of financial issues, so inflation, et cetera. And it's just a case that, like, uh, you know, obviously Roe v. Wade was a huge deal during the summer, but breaking news from June is no longer breaking news in, in November. That's just how, how it works. So it's also died down a little bit in terms of just the agency and the sort of uh, attention it gets. And that has in the mode sort of um, advantage Republicans. So that's the dynamic that is underneath there. Yeah, because when I was doing some preparation for this podcast, one of the things I was noticing a lot is that there were a lot of headlines going on that abortion and Roe v. Wade wasn't in the top five even more of polled voters' concerns going to selection. Mm-hmm. And it was a category primarily dominated by inflation or, you know, by dynamics, as they're calling it nowadays, um, economy, and, and even crime and violence, if we're looking at districts yep. like New York and stuff like that. So it's, it's interesting how that has changed. And do you, do you expect that to kind of impact what will happen once this election finishes up and moves forward? Or is then still the inertia of politics moving forward? Um, it depends on whether or not inflation goes up or down, um, especially on the crime thing. Yeah. Like, don't underestimate the level of orchestrated propaganda campaign that came from Fox News and right-wing media. You, you may recall mm-hmm. that every year around an election, there is some sort of migrant caravan heading towards the states and oh, we're all going to die because there's immigrants coming. Like, this always happens, and then magically they disappear after the election. Um, so th- this is, I mean, from a campaign and strategy perspective, this was smart on the end of Republicans. Um, there yeah. is also a critique to be leveled at Democrats, which is that you're, okay, so losing your right to an abortion is a big deal. Mm-hmm. But if you are at the same time dealing with potentially getting evicted in three weeks, your eviction is going to far outweigh any theoretical loss in your rights in the long run, right? Like getting evicted is an imminent problem. Uh, so it's very mm-hmm. much front of mind. And that is a dynamic that I think Democrats tend to forget because they don't actually admit, like, if, if you now say, well, actually, the economy's fine, it doesn't feel fine and it isn't fine. So at the very least, you need to acknowledge that it isn't fine while simultaneously saying, but also our rights under attack. And in that sense, 
Republicans tend to be better campaigners than policymakers, and Democrats tend to be better policymakers than campaigners. But that's a whole nutter, uh, you know, rabbit hole to go down. I think to kind of uh, stop with the the bigger rabbit holes, I, I did kind of want to ask you, as an election observer yourself, are there any other districts or any particular districts you've been keeping a keen eye on, and any particularly spicy battles that you've been seeing play out that we should you know observe as well from this side of the ocean? Yeah, there's a lot of interesting ones. Um, mostly they're on the Senate and the governor level. Uh, and let me touch first on why the House is kind of difficult. So normally speaking, mm-hmm. to find an interesting House, you would find a district that voted for either Biden or Trump, and now has sort of a, a weak incumbent and is a close race. Uh, one of the problems is that redistricting happened in 2020. So a lot of the districts that we have data on are redrawn. So it doesn't really make sense anymore to do the comparison. So my own district got redrawn, so I'm now in a different place. So that's why the house is kind of tricky. You could still look at things like Virginia 7, which is Abigail Spanberger, um, but really it's in the Senate and in the governor's race. And for the Senate, you're mostly talking about Pennsylvania, Georgia, Arizona, and Nevada. Those four are more or less the the most important ones, in part because they have some um, pretty memeable characters in some of these races. And for governors, yeah, I didn't want to say that, but they definitely do. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Uh, and for governor's race, especially uh, Arizona, I believe Arizona is yeah is uh, Hobbs, right? Hobbs versus Lake, yeah. Um, and Georgia mm-hmm. are relevant. Um, so let me break one of them down. Georgia is kind of interesting because we have Raphael Warnock, who is uh, a pastor. A, a PhD as well, and a senator now, like he has a lot of titles, uh, is running against a guy called Herschel Walker, who is a former football star. Uh, and they're both black men, which is relevant because A, this is the Deep South, and because there's always this competition about um, who can get the black vote, which is traditionally uh, democratic. Um, Herschel Walker is a shitty candidate. Like, purely... Based on his own qualities, he is not intelligent. He admitted himself that he cannot spell politician. Uh, He made a big deal about basically African-American kids growing up without a dad and that African-American men should take their own, uh, you know, like agency and should actually take care of their kids. And then it turns out he had like five or six kids out of wedlock and refused to pay like child protective or child support for them. He's aggressively anti-abortion, including rape and incest. Um, but then has paid for several of his mistresses to have abortions. So quite obviously, he's just a really, really bad candidate on any possible metric, but it doesn't seem to matter at all. And this is quite emblematic of the American political environment. It's just about the win. It's just about denying the other team a victory. Uh, And candidate quality appears to have gone down quite a bit. This also has to do with Trump's endorsement effect, but we'll, we can cover that a bit later. What is also interesting is that Stacey Abrams, the famous Democratic powerhouse, is running for governor against Kemp. And here we start seeing something that's very interesting, namely that in the United States, race and gender is inextricably linked to politics. So Herschel Walker versus... Um, Warnock is roughly 50-50-ish, right? It's, it's more or less flip. But Kemp, the Republican candidate or the incumbent governor for Georgia versus Abrams is not close at all. Like Stacey Abrams is going to lose. 
uh, and Kemp has something like a 10-point advantage, which raises a question, namely, why is Stace Abrams so far down? And it turns out that some of this has to do with, one, some level of the American public is racist and is sexist. And some of these might have been willing to vote for Biden just to deny Trump because they didn't like him. But voting for a black woman is a bridge too far. And in this particular setting, you can more or less set up an experimental setup where you can see the size of this effect. Because Kemp, being a white man, is not very threatening to some voters, whereas a black woman is. And interestingly enough, uh, Stacey Abrams is also lagging a bit among African-American men. So there are all sorts of interesting intersectional dynamics that are going on here that uh, come on to Georgia. And Georgia has a runoff system as well. So basically, if no one wins 50% plus one, we have to do another election, which means we have to go to December, which means I don't sleep enough, um, and this election drags on and on and on. So Georgia is an interesting place to look at right now. Mm. I don't want to shift away too much, but on the topic of runoffs, do you think that this is a phenomenon we'll be seeing again this year, Then, Because I, I remember with, 20, with 2020 also, yeah, I mean, staying up to like two, I think it was four a.m. having worked the next day, and not knowing the result till like two days later. Yeah, is, is will we see similar s- situations happen again? Yeah, definitely. Um, so the issue is kind of this won't be an election night. Uh, I think the House might be clear by election night, but the Senate. Mm-hmm. It happens to be that the battleground states that we're talking about—Arizona, Nevada, uh, Pennsylvania, and Georgia—are all very slow counting states. Kind of like last year, right? You remember that it took like a week for Biden to actually be called, even though it was to analysts, it was fairly obvious that this was going to happen. Uh, so it it may take several days, two, three, maybe a week, for um, the election to actually be called and to know who controls the Senate. And that is before we get into runoff stuff. Um, so if there's a runoff in Georgia, it might even be the end of December until we know what's actually going to happen. And this is going to be relevant because um, the lame duck session for the Democrats, so basically a lame duck is between an election and when the actual new Congress takes uh, takes its hold. Historically, you don't make policy in a lame duck because it doesn't seem democratically kosher to do that. Uh, but if you know that you're going to lose your majorities, you might as well you know, pass a bunch of stuff, which is what's probably going to, to end up happening. Uh, there is another scenario, which is even more niche, which is... Utah, I think, where it's uh, an arch conservative called Mike Lee, who's up against the independent. So Utah is a very, very, very conservative state. Democrats would get absolutely murdered there. Uh, but the independent candidate hasn't said if he'll caucus with the Republicans or the Democrats, right? So there's also this scenario where essentially control of the Senate will hinge on this one person who then basically is the new Joe Manchin. Um, so there's these kinds of scenarios as well. Uh, but most likely, It'll be at least a couple days after the election. Uh, if it goes to runoff, then I think it's December 6th, something like that. So it'll be maybe a bit longer mm-hmm. than that, December 8th, maybe. Well, it's going to be a long fall for us, I suppose. But <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. yeah. This is the life of a U.S. political analyst. I mean, it keeps life exciting to some extent. But with elections, there's also always results. And I think that's, I think, one of the reasons why people are listening in and what do you predict the range of options will be from this election that could that could happen? Uh, so there's essentially, if we restrict ourselves for the moment to the House and the Senate, 
which is the most relevant yeah. on a federal level, there is essentially four options, a two-by-two two matrix. Either Republicans win both the House and the Senate, Democrats win both, that seems very unlikely. And the most likely scenario is that uh, Democrats will hold the Senate and lose the House. And all of these have different policy implications. So if Republicans take the House, which is likely, you can expect them to try and impeach Joe Biden again. Uh, you can try expect them to try and put um, Benghazi-style commissions on Hunter Biden. Uh, you won't see the January 6th committee anymore. And they'll basically do everything they can to obstruct uh, the Biden agenda. They may also, although that's a bit more tricky of an issue, um, cut back on funding for Ukraine. But we'll we'll get mm. to that later. Um, if Democrats hold the Senate, this is actually fairly important because it means they can keep confirming judges. So suppose that uh, Clarence Thomas, the Supreme Court justice, uh, who is also apparently a bit of a fascist, but okay, uh, keels over. Democrats will control enough senators to actually determine who will fill that Supreme Court seat. So this this would actually be a meaningful difference between losing both and uh, losing only one. I think the most likely scenario still is that the House goes Republican and that the Democrats hold the Senate. But we're dealing with an enormous amount of uncertainty here. So it could just be that the Republicans have a great night and they end up winning like 30 or 40 seats in the House and end up winning four or five Senate seats. It could also be that Democrats have a great night. Um, and it's really difficult now to actually figure out where it's going because the polls and the conventional wisdom are saying different things right now. The polls seem fairly good for Democrats, but then everyone still has trauma, like literal trauma from 2016 and 2020 with polls. So everyone's kind of hedging their bets. The safe bet is to say Republicans win. Probably the House, maybe also the Senate. Um, but it's very, very unstable. And again, this shouldn't be close. Like midterms for the opposition party are a cakewalk. You should be absolutely destroying everyone. And yet it's not the case. Yeah. And I think that's ringing to me so far as, as the key takeaway from our discussion, something that I didn't really pick up on beforehand. But moving past the results, because as you're saying, we can spend all night prophesizing about mm -hmm. what that will be. One thing that will be concrete as we move out will be the trends that we've observed throughout. And Paul, you've written yourself a bit about a few of the key trends and key themes that you've been keeping an eye on for the past few months that will undubitably continue to evolve throughout the coming months, weeks, years, post-election. Uh, post do you want to maybe uh, highlight one or two of those and explain why you've been so in, you know, so, so obsessed over those? Yeah, so, so the thing that looms largest and as most obvious is Trumpism and Trump 2024. Um, I said at the start of the podcast that this election is essentially a test of whether or not election denial is a viable strategy. And mm -hmm. the thing is that Trump had an impact in a lot of primaries, where in a base maximization kind of campaign, uh, he has a very strong influence, right? So a lot of the most Trumpy candidates, Dr. Oz, J.D. Vance, uh, Herschel Walker, Karen, uh, Karen Lake, I think is her name, um, all made Carrie. it through. Carrie Lake. Um, on the other hand, we had a election in 2021, which was Virginia gubernatorial race. Virginia was won by something like 10 points by Biden in 2020, and yet went Republican by, I think, five points. So this is a 15-point swing. This is what you would naturally expect from 
a midterm environment that's favorable to Republicans. And yet, all these races are 50-50. So you could say, if you interpret this generously, electing Trump candidates is a really shitty strategy because these people should be absolutely destroying everyone in the polls, and yet it's close. Uh, but if it's just mm-hmm. enough to eke out a win, then it's enough to eke out a win, and then you see that this is going to happen more and more and more. And there's also, of course, the question, do the most Trumpy candidates actually accept the results of an election? Does a Carrie Lake accept that she loses an election, or is she just going to keep fighting? Um, and, of course, a lot of these governor and secretary of state positions, they determine whether or not the results of an election will be certified. They set the rules for an election. Remember that presidential elections are basically 50 separate uh, state elections. And yeah. there's a super famous now Secretary of State called Raffensperger in Georgia who got pressured by Trump to find, quote-unquote, find 12,000 votes so he could win the state of Georgia. Uh, these people are now being elected. So this will have pretty large repercussions going forward. And if nothing else, this will just continue to more political divide and maybe even political violence within America, which I think is also one of the trends that seems keen to be explored in the coming weeks and months as well. Yeah. Um, I mean, Nancy Pelosi's husband got attacked by a ha- with someone by a hammer. Um, political rhetoric, political antagonism, political violence is at a level, like I said, that it's unprecedented since the Civil War. Uh, if you go on to, if you use the sort of more data tracky types of like ways to look at rhetoric, you see that civil war is also trending on a lot of different subreddits and sort of even darker corners of the, the web. Um, and there is this underlying sentiment that democracy is at stake, but people don't agree on why that is. So a lot of people actually blame Democrats for undermining democracy. Add something like two-thirds of people have their doubts on whether or not the 2020 election, two-thirds of Republicans, I should say, have their doubt on whether the 2020 election was free and fair. So I do align with the rhetoric of Biden and Obama. Election is at stake here, but mostly faith in elections is also at stake. There's there's sort of the metagame of like, are elections in different ways being distorted, like gerrymandering, this sort of stuff, right? But those are within that scope acceptable parameters within the rather weird system of the United States. And there's just flat out denying that someone won. There is just not counting votes. And that second category is becoming more and more acceptable to a lot of people. And that is super problematic because people see the other side as literally the death of America. And we need to get these fake patriots out of here. Um, And this... I mean, it all has to do with Trump, of course, like Trump normalizing these kinds of rhetorics. And as an American, it's pretty depressing to see that a country like Brazil, which has only had constitutional democracies, I believe, 1988, has greater respect for norms and institutions and democratic values than the United States. Uh, So that is really a bad sign. Are there any other similar implications maybe for countries closer to home in in the EU from this election that you can draw out? I mean, I know you've talked a bit about how the polarization tends to, like, cross the ocean, but are there any other trends that you want to mention? Um, So the midterms are not that relevant for the EU, to be honest. Um, 
I, I don't talked. Say that. It's the Brubble podcast. <laughs> Not that relevant. They're relevant because what happens in the United States is relevant. But so, yeah. Typically speaking, um, foreign policy is done by the executive branch of the United States, which is the president. Mm-hmm. And the president is typically given uh, a wide ranging authority on what he wants to do, he or she, I suppose, in theory, uh, wants to do on foreign policy. Uh, there's this bleeding effect that I just talked about that we take over kind of the attitudes of the United States in, in, in Europe. And there's an off chance that Republicans would put some very extreme sort of legislative proposals on the table, but they, those would just get vetoed by Biden anyway, right? So for uh, Europe, what is sort of more relevant than really the proactive sort of choices that the United States makes is its own inertia and its own inability to actually make policy. The United States is in front of a couple of like pretty sizable challenges, uh, climate change, um, things like AI, competition with China. It cannot really afford right now to not be able to get things done. And it hasn't been able to get things done for well over 10 years now. So in that sense, within the competition with China, uh, the United States is slowing down. China is now also slowing down for different reasons. But within that sort of like balance of power, we lean a lot closer to the United States than to China. Of course, the big, big thing that people are worried about is that this midterm sets off the um, recipe for Trump to come back. Uh, and yeah. if that happens, then then you have some very, very big policy proposals, uh, including things like the US leaving NATO, like all, all that stuff. But we'll have to deal with that when we get there. I think one final more niche question on the on the transatlantic relationship as we see it. Do you think this midterm elections results could have any influence on the discussions of sovereignty that have been going on? Because I know as a result of Bidenomics and his new uh, plans, he's been pr- promoting a lot of, you know, investment in America, American businesses. And that has led to a lot of Europeans being, hey, that's not completely fair because we also, you know, want to sell in America, and then America turning back and saying, hey, you've been doing the same thing here. Do you think that this sovereignty debate can get can be made worse via these election results, or am I, or am I just looking, barking up the wrong tree? Not these election results, but in the long run, yeah. Um, so mm-hmm. I, I was actually just talking to Dutch media about the, the U.S. ban on ASML sending EUV machines to China. Um, yeah. And I think it was the Secretary of International Trade that was coming to talk to ASML now. Listen, right now we have Biden. And right now that means that we have someone that is nominally in favor of multipolarity or multilateralism. Mm-hmm. Uh, not multipolarity, multilateralism. And is willing to actually talk to people. Uh, so this is sort of the, the good faith way of dealing with the Europeans. You also have the bad faith way of dealing with the Europeans, which would be a Trump, which is like, F you. Uh, I'm just going to sanction ASML. Good luck. See you later. It has woke, like the election of Trump in particular has woken up Europe to this idea of what you called sovereignty and is typically referred to as strategic autonomy, which is this notion that Europe should be able to pursue its own foreign policy and geopolitical goals with or without the blessing of the United States. Uh, So take an Iran nuclear deal, the Europeans wanted to keep it because we like selling Airbuses to the Iranians and we like Iranian oil. Um, the Americans were like, no, 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 you're not going to do that. And then we couldn't do anything because we get hit by secondary sanctions. So this genie is out of the bottle in that sense. 
at the same time, the war in Ukraine would have been a very good moment for the Europeans to also step up and start funding the Ukrainians, but that support has not yet really materialized. It's the Brits, distinctly not EU, and the Americans that are now mostly funding it. So, yeah, the EU is... It's, it's pretty clear that within the EU context, the old pillars of foreign policy, in particular free trade and pacifism, are dying. Uh, this can't mm. happen anymore. But it's not clear yet what is going to replace it, because the EU has been historically very allergic to industrial policy, which is exactly the thing that the United States and China are doing right now with semiconductors and all this sort of stuff. So it's not yet clear what shape European geopolitics and geodynamics will actually take uh what form it will take fair enough i think those are some interesting questions that you over which i can definitely talk about for another half hour if need be but i think our allotted half hour 45 minutes is is disappearing before our eyes um, i guess we'll just have to talk about it again ah but uh, <laughs> paul do you have any final reflections or final thoughts on the on the american election that, that you want to put out to the world before we wrap this up um midterm election yeah, like, be nice to your fellow Americans. Uh, it's not easy. It's not easy being an American right now. Uh, it hasn't been easy to be an American since basically the election of Trump because people will ask you, like, have you collectively lost your mind? And the answer is yes. But also, like, I mean, take myself as an example, right? I'm a highly, highly engaged, politically, uh, politically literate and active voter. And the only yeah. thing I can really do to meaningfully change the outcome of the midterms is donate money, right? That mm. feels super, super bad as an American. Uh, and most of the Americans that actually live abroad tend to be from progressive places. So they are mostly in the same kind of situation. So uh, be nice to them. Uh, they're going through a lot. And uh, yeah, mostly that. Yeah. As uh, leaning on my Canadian roots, I, I'm so tempted to laugh, but then I see the the same like American rhetoric spreading over to the Canadian border, which uh, <laughs> is not looking good. So yeah, well, whatever we the, the Americans together. do will affect America's hat, which is of course the Canadians. And uh, if we do end up having a civil hey. war in the United States, you're going to have a lot of uh, refugees coming north. So you know, hey, just just don't crash the immigration website again, like you did in 2016. Uh, That's all I we, ask. Uh, we'll do our best. <laughs> Uh, so, Paul, I've had a great time discussing this. Um, I'm going to drop your, your links in the, in the description for people if they want to follow your Twitter, follow your newsletter, or I, I believe your, your website, sorry, which has some great news on it. Anything else that uh, you want to shout out that you've been involved with? Um, not really. I mean, I've been working on uh, polarization in algorithms, but I don't think that's shareable yet. Uh, but if you want to yeah. talk about that at some future point in an, in an interview, then uh, more than happy to, to accommodate. I'll keep that in mind. I'll keep that in mind. Well, thanks again for, for taking the time to come off and, uh, you know, talk about your half of your identity here, or sorry, a third of your identity, and really make this clear to us uh, and show us the EU connection. Thank you for the invite. Happy to talk. No worries. No worries. For If you're listening, thanks for listening through. And if you want to like and subscribe, please do that. Our next episode should be on EU enlargement. Um, Barring illnesses, I'm hoping it will go out on time. Uh, if not, you might have a juicy one on blockchain and EU regulations coming out soon, too. So keep your eyes and ears out for that. So but anyways, thanks for sticking around and see you next time. Bye. Bye.